Hello and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinks. I am your host, Zach Chabal. Coming up in a minute, Heather Gordon and I answer some of your burning questions, but first, a thought. So a rapidly emerging trend in the wine world is major corporations buying up well-known brands, hoping to take those wines national or even global. Just the other day, uh, word broke that Charles Smith, right here in my hometown of Seattle, sold several of his most prominent wines, including Kung Fu Girl Riesling and Velvet Devil Merlot, to Constellation Brands for a reported $120 million. Yes, that is a lot of money. And it clearly represents a big bet by Constellation on the future of Washington wine in the global market. Uh, it also shows that those major brands have a lot of faith in the continued growth of what I'd call semi-bargain wines. Those are wines that retail for 10 to $15 on average. They're not the absolute bottom of the market, uh, aka two-buck chuck, but they're also not the most expensive kind of 20 dollar range. So I do think this is kind of a natural evolution. As more and more Americans drink wine, there's room to kind of push people up past that 5 to $10 range for wine. Uh, that's why Constellation and these other companies, I think, are betting on that price point. Um, and as those wines and that price point become more accepted as kind of the bottom end of the market, I think you also see a lot of people saying, well, if I spend 10 to 15, maybe I'll spend 15 to 20 to 25 even on a wine pretty regularly. And that's a price point that most people uh, to this point haven't really broached. But I do think that Constellation, Jackson Family, and others are kind of making inroads in that market, preparing themselves for growth there. Um, also, I'll say there's a natural inclination to kind of recoil when major brands buy up small producers, though Charles Smith isn't exactly small, uh, but I do think there's a lot of benefit to wine drinkers uh, in general. For one, there's a high, that higher baseline that I talked about I think is good for most of us, um, and it does help to make sort of good, acceptable, perfectly fine wine available nationwide at a reasonable price. And then it allows those of us who want to spend more, who want to find better stuff, to do that but to start from a higher baseline. And if you want to learn more about wine and live in or near Seattle, or just feel like making a trip, check out my wine classes and events. You can learn more and view the upcoming schedule on my website, vinetrainings.com. That's Vine with a V. This December will feature a really exciting holiday wine spectacular with some great bubbles, celebratory bottles, and maybe even a few special guests. So check it out. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Disgorged. My guest once again today is Heather Gordon, certified sommelier and author of the hilarious and informative blog, Blanc de Blonde. Uh, so today I thought it'd be kind of fun, Heather, to uh, just take some questions from our listeners and uh, readers and see uh, what they're curious about. Um, so I'll go ahead and uh, kick things off right here, uh, which is a question uh, that I think is endlessly fun, which is if you could visit one wine region in the world right now, what would it be? Nice. What would it be? Oh, well, are you are you I asking think, me? Yeah, you go ahead and answer, oh, okay, and then I'll give cool. my answer afterwards. All right. Um, well, I'm a huge fan of the Loire Valley, so it would have to be the Loire, but also Ital some Italian wine regions like Sardinia or even the Canary Islands oh, cool. would have to be my favorites, and I would love to visit. So is that uh, because you're like particularly excited about the wines from there or there's something about those places in I mean, obviously it's because you're interested in the wines. I mean, that's an obvious yeah. thing, but like, but like, is it about like, like Sardinia? I mean, you're talking about like an island. There's sort of that island culture that it's, you know, Italian, but also kind of its own thing. Like, 
I mean, it sounds like in the Canary Islands, obviously you're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah. It certainly sounds like it would be a lot of fun, but like, like, is it, is part of it just the kind of general cultural vibe there? So different for each place, I would say, um, the Canary Islands, I think we talked about on the last podcast we did together, but the way they make wine and the way they grow their grapes there is insane. Mm-hmm. And so I'd really like to see that it's different from, I, I don't know anywhere else that does it. I'm not saying that, you know, people don't, but the way they do it and like dig holes in the ground cause it's so windy and stuff would mm-hmm. be really cool. Sardinia, um, I think is beautiful place and their wines are usually more rustic and big and different than I think a lot of other wines. I mean, you know, depending. And then the Loire Valley is just my jam. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, it, are you like, are you thinking like the whole length of the, of the Loire? Are you like, you want to set up shop in like the Penante or in Touraine or what? Like, is there, is there, if like, if I was like, okay, you get to just pick one part of the Loire. Is there like some, is it, is that even a possible question to answer? Or are you just like, I, you, well, why are I you would, asking me this? Yeah. Well, no, I would like to go everywhere. That'd be awesome. But I, okay. My French isn't great. You had a beautiful accent there, but, <laughs> um, Turin. Uh-huh. I can't say it like yeah. in French, but um, that's where I would like to go. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorite places. I think it's beautiful, and I think it's all beautiful though. But I would say Trin. Excellent. And I would say like just giving back to Sardinia. One of the things I think is really interesting about Sardinian wine, and it's a thing that I think you can experience uh, as a as a wine lover, even if you don't go there. And it's not a place I've been either, although it'd be yeah. super interested to go. Is you know the the Sardinian. Uh, wine is often made from varietals that you would see other places like there's a lot of vermentino which is obviously grown in other parts of italy uh Kenanau is like the the big red grape which is grenache yeah. but it's totally different than like southern rhone grenache or spanish garnacha or, or certainly like new world grenache and yeah i think it's like that's what's super cool about a place like that is like almost and not to get super nerdy but almost in the same way that like animals evolve differently and like on islands and they're like sort of specialized and are different than even their close sort of relatives on larger continental uh in larger you know like on continents it's same thing i think with wine like between the varietal the grapes themselves are a little different and the winemaking technique and customs are different because islands are so insular um up until yeah. relatively recently they have this whole kind of interesting history i mean to me like sicily is another place that i'd really love to go um for that same kind of reason like you have i mean this incredible sort of culture that is part italian but it's also got a lot of like uh you know Arabic and and uh, Northern African influence and it, it, yeah I mean it's just uh, to me that's like one of the things that's great about wine is it can kind of be this uh, entry point to um, sort of understanding a, a broader culture or a place or a people um, and you can sort of see how they're all that thing all that evolved when you try a bottle of wine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in each place, there you know different climates. And, you know, rainfall, everything, different places. So mm-hmm. that really affects. And then there's soil, you know. you That stuff is crazy and different in each place you go to. So I think that also, like in Sardinia, would be different. Because it's so, I've heard that it's, like, very, like, farmy. You yeah. know, there's lots of, it's just, like, rustic country, kind of. Well, like, Instead the thing of you hear, like, too, is, like, there's just, like, what I've heard at least is like maybe it's a specific, especially in the spring or whatever, but there's just like fennel pollen everywhere. Like, yeah, fennel grows yeah. wild. And it's like, 
it's almost like you like how does that not end up in the wine in one way or another and i'm not saying that if you sit down with a bottle of sardinian vermentino and you taste it you're like oh fennel of course but (laughs) but it does you know maybe it's just in a place uh at at that time but i feel like it it is you know those sort of characteristics and of course sort of the brininess the saltiness of the sea air that's you know always going to have a big influence um on an you know an island wine or coastal wine in general um yeah it's super exciting and that's kind of the great thing about wine is it can to some extent kind of transport us uh to those places even uh even if we can't um can't quite go there ourselves all the time i will say to 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 add to this conversation briefly because i there's one other place that i wanted to mention and i'm only mentioning it because i have no shame and i'm going there in a few weeks so i'm going to brag about it for a minute which is uh um piedmont and uh you know, sort of in the northwestern corner of Italy, uh, the home of Nebbiolo, which is arguably my favorite red varietal, although, you know, catch me on the right day and I might say something else. But <laughs> uh, I just, I'm very excited. It's it, They've been wines I've loved for a long That's time. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. We're going to get uh, to spend uh, four, well, four nights, so five days, four nights in, in Alba, right in the center of Piedmont as part of a larger trip to Europe, uh, which will also involve a few other wine regions. But, but that's really the one that's been on my list for a really long time. And I think there it's like, again, this kind of great uh, expression of, you know, first of all, a varietal in particular in Nebbiolo that really isn't grown anywhere else. I mean, it is been it has been grown a little bit in other places, but has never really um, achieved a whole lot of success anywhere else. And it's um, so tied to the culture of of Piedmont and uh, and the sort of Piedmontese way of life, which is itself sort of Italian ish, but they're always been a little bit remote. They've had various parts in in the past been you know, not always, you know, Italy hasn't always been unified and, and when, and at various times in the past, it's been controlled by other, uh, you know, countries or, I don't know, kingdoms or whatever. And, uh, I just, I'm, I'm very excited to see it and to sort of taste these very similar yet still distinct expressions of Nebbiolo and in, in terms of Barolo and Barbaresco, which are the two main, uh, sort of communes that you might see typically on a bottle here, as well as some, um, stuff from a little bit further north and uh, Geme and Gatanara. So, um, yes, I will get to check that one off the list uh, in just about a month. So That's awesome. Yeah. You have to try If you're going to Alba, though, you have to drink some uh, Barbera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, there'll be, that's, I mean, there'll be Barbera and Dolcetto and, and some Arnais and all that for sure. Some, probably even some Moscato d'Asti. Um, but, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the... The, the king there is definitely Nebbiolo and, uh, you know, definitely going to make a point to drink as much of that as I as I can before I uh, have to go to uh, go back to come back to the States. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm jealous. Thanks. Yeah. I uh, I will uh, I will report back. Uh, hopefully. Hopefully they'll let me back. Uh, sorry. You have another question? Yes. Give me a second. So I was asked. Uh, does the color of the bottle the wine comes in make a difference? Dark, light, and colored. Hmm. So I've heard, and I don't know about you. You probably have too. But frosted bottles, sometimes they put wine in frosted bottles to protect the wine from like UV mm-hmm. rays and things like that. Other than that, I don't really think so. I mean, maybe a thought is that putting it in a darker bottle protects it, you know, from any, I don't know, sun or something like that. But I don't think it really matters. I drink wine of all bottle colors. I don't discriminate. Exactly. Um, I would say that I've sort of heard the same thing. My general sense is like, 
if the wine is a serious wine, and by which I mean like a wine that someone is buying with the intention of possibly hanging on to it for a little while before opening it, then it really shouldn't matter because hopefully you are putting that somewhere that it's not getting a bunch of sunlight. Like yeah, exactly. You want to store your wine somewhere kind of cool and dark and, you know, it's, so the color of the bottle itself shouldn't matter. I would think that with um, with white wines, you know, you, you know, well, I, I will say this, like clear bottles are nice in the sense that if you want to look at the bottle and have an understanding of the color of the wine, that's fine. Um, I think it's maybe a little more useful with whites than it is with reds because with reds, unless the wine is really, um, you know, as a, a wine of either really, really like tons of pigment in the grape, you know, if you're a bottle of Petit Verdot or something, or, you know, a really, really delicate Pinot Noir or something like that, where you can really see the color difference, even in a full bottle. Um, I don't think it makes a huge difference. Um, I do think like there's a lot of it's just tradition that I, I couldn't explain to you why like classically you'll see Riesling in, in green bottles sometimes or other sort of uh, Alsatian or, or German bottlings like that. There's obviously yeah. lots of, you know, the, the, this also plays into like bottle shape and things like that. Um, a lot of which is tradition, which may or may not have a whole lot of like hard scientific evidence to back it up. It might have a little bit of common sense to back it up. Um, but I would say like m- my general consideration is like, Again, like I said, if it's a sort of, eh, whatever, I'm just buying a bottle to drink it tonight, then, you know, probably doesn't matter because it's not going to, you know, whatever damage has been done to it, it's been done to it already. Like, you know, whatever. Um, and as long as it's not a wine from 10 years ago and it's sitting in the wine shop window, you know, that yeah. I might be concerned about if it's a clear colored bottle. Um, but other than that, um, I, I don't, I, it's hard for me to sort of to feel like there's got to be something that's really um, critical um, as far as the, like, color of the bottle i don't know i mean i mean this is just idle speculation which is really what podcasts are all about because you know i'm not doing a bunch of research um on this but i i do think like you know i would be let's just say like i don't ever really consciously think about the color of the bottle unless it specifically draws my attention and if it draws my attention that might be a bad thing because it's probably like blue and then i'm like well this is weird why is the bottle blue yeah like that what's that moscato everyone bartonura Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's what it is they're like, because uh, I work in a wine store, people come in, they're like, I just want this blue bottle and it's sweet. I'm like, follow me. And that's exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> yep. And then, you just, and then you just take them over to the hypnotic, right? Yeah. My sister actually texted me the other day and she's like, I'm drinking this great wine. Not to, you know, say anything about my sister. She drinks some beautiful wine and she knows a lot about wine. But she texted me and she's like, I'm drinking this great wine. It's in a blue bottle and it's... it's Bartonura, I was like, why? H- how did you get it? Yeah. Who gave it to you? <laughs> yeah, but it is. That, that was a while is, ago. This is a not a reader question. This is just a personal question because I'm curious. Are I feel like you know when you work in the in the industry that we work in, you get a lot of like text calls, messages, whatever from people who are like, oh, like either should I like what should I drink or like have you tried this? And I feel like are there any bottles where if your sister or someone else message you and they're like oh i'm drinking this you should, you should, like either you should try it or what do you know about it would you just be like oh really maybe it was that bottle i just i feel like there's a few yeah, for well, me where i'm like oh, if okay. someone if someone in my family probably not other people that i you know don't really care what they're drinking but like someone in my family if they texted me and were like i'm drinking white zen i would be like just put it down like what are you doing so I think that one would be a big Yeah, problem. that's generally a, a bad sign. I will say, weirdly, I was in 
just in North Carolina, which you would not think of as a wine producing region, but we actually went to a winery. Uh, they grow a few uh, non vinifera grapes, um, and then they buy grapes from other parts of the country and make wine from it. Um, and they they we went tasting because we were like, well, what the hell? We're in North Carolina. I might as well try it. And uh, one of the wines I had was a White Zin, which I will say is was not great, but was less bad than I thought it would be. It was also not. It was like off dry but it wasn't like overtly sweet which i kind of was like oh maybe like the yeah. trend towards dry wine has even affected white zin and it maybe even like behringer white zin is like less residual yeah. sugar than it did 10 or 15 years ago which i would consider like a positive direction for the wine industry as a whole yeah i would agree absolutely um yeah i mean it's just it kind of reminds me of my grandmother she would drink big boxes like in not like a normal size box these were like big boxes of pink wine uh-huh. And I'm and I'm pretty sure like it had to be white zen, yeah. right? And I look thinking back, I was like, come on, could it, it get better? Than yeah, that? it definitely wasn't uh, Domaine Tempier in the box. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but right, so- I don't. I'm for me, I'm not big on like people drinking like high price bottles. Like my, even myself, I drink wine nightly. I get a new bottle every night. And I don't drink anything over, I mean, sometimes over like $20, but usually it's like well under 20 bucks. Yeah. Um, I, that so. actually is, that's actually, we'll just, I'll just use that as a segue into one of the questions I have, which is, um, what do you think is the best advice you can give to someone who wants to buy wine in that like 15-ish dollar range if they don't know much about wine, whether it's a varietal, a place, something to look for, um, people who want quality wine, but don't really know where to start. I would suggest come and talk to like me or someone who works in a wine store who is not, not a liquor store, not some, you know, grocery store. It has to be like a wine shop, you know, and the people that are working there usually are pretty passionate about wine. Um, you know, so I drink a lot of wine and the people in stores, wine stores drink a lot of the wine. And so they'll probably be able to help you, um, do that. I I just feel like it's pretty easy to find wine. Like I always was able to find, even before I was interested in it, um, under $20 wines, but you have to be like adventurous. Mm -hmm. You can't like stick to buying like, you know, Pinot Grigio, which I just wrote an article about how I think Pinot Grigio is skanky because it's (laughs) everywhere but like i think i think that you have to just be open to experiencing new things and you can't say oh i don't drink red wine oh i don't drink white wine because that makes no sense you know you need you there's tons and tons of grapes and i think that's the that's my advice explore and experience wine because that's why people fall in love with it like you and me is we've experienced so many different things within the world of wine. Mm-hmm. I would also say, I think um, it, talking to someone, you know, at a shop is a really good idea. It's my like go-to advice for people in general. If they're like have questions about wine or like what to buy. And I think like people in wine shops, especially if it's a good wine shop have probably tried many, if not all of the wines on the shelves and they can hopefully steer you towards something that is going to meet your you know, your needs and, and they can help turn you on to some stuff that you might not be familiar with. I do think more like in a more specific piece of advice, I think the the place that I like to look for 
I think really kind of exceptional value in both reds and whites is Spain and Portugal. I think those are still wines that are really, really high quality, um, that cover a really wide spectrum of styles and are just, to my way of thinking, at least really underpriced. You just get so much, um, you can get you know, a lot of wines made from um, really old vines with great um, sort of character and expression, and um, they're made in, you know, in, in many cases in a very uh, modern fashion or, or alternately, if you prefer sort of rusticity in your wine, you can find a lot of rustic uh, wines. And they're just, I mean, $15, if that, in a lot of cases on shelves. And they're just, it's just a, it's a place to look, you know, part of the reason they don't sell, they don't sell for as much as in many cases, the varietals are, you know, lesser known to people. I mean, even Tempranillo, which is a pretty well-known or in our circles is a well-known varietal is still a little bit out there for some people. And certainly when you're getting into, you know, Trigo Nacional in Portugal or, uh, you know, uh, Viura uh, slash Macabeo and as a white wine in Spain or all the, I mean, there's a million varietals I can name and they just, they don't get, they don't get the, the sort of commercial attention that they deserve. And that means they're a great bargain um, if and when you look for them. Absolutely. Totally agree. I think Tempranillo is badass. I think all those are badass. Tortuga Nacional, again, sorry for the lack of uh, accent on that. Tortuga Nacional, I think it's like a hidden gem that not a lot of people know about at all, but it's a very beautiful wine. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's big without being like too huge. And it's just perfect. So I, if you could find it, then drink that. Yeah. So the, the Tariga Nacional is like a, a varietal that it's one of the principal varietals in port typically. And so you, you'll you find it in port. But if you look for wines from the Douro, which is D-U-O-R-O Valley in Portugal, they're often made from Tariga Nacional and they're made in a totally dry style. They're made, you know, relatively full-bodied red wines. And yeah, they're just, I've had some that I mean like are, I don't know, like, eight dollars wholesale that are just like, yeah. like wow how, how how do you why aren't you charging more for this i mean i'll gladly buy it at that price but yeah. but it is really um exceptional i think the one other thing about sort of value shopping for wine is like you do have to a little bit give up on in my eyes you have to kind of concede that you're probably not going to be able to buy something that's like you're not going to find like a 15 dollar i don't know Napa Cab. I mean, I hope not. I that probably is a wine you should just avoid. Like you do have to sort of sacrifice either you may have to make some kind of sacrifice whether it's varietal that it might be a varietal you're not familiar with or it might have to be from a place that you're less familiar with or it might not be it, you might not be able to get a wine that's like a cabernet that's like seen a lot of oak cuz oak is expensive and those things get passed on into the cost of the wine. And so like you do have to a little bit embrace Either as you know, as you were saying earlier, Heather, like you have to either embrace um, sort of the uh, the unknown, or you have to say like, okay, I might get a varietal I'm familiar with, but I'm going to get it instead of getting Chardonnay from, you know, again to to come back Napa Valley or even Burgundy, I'm going to get Chardonnay from, I don't know, uh, Slovenia or something, and just roll the dice on that. Yeah, which I think is more badass, anyways. I mean, like. Napa Cab and oaked wines, just, you know, generally speaking, which are more expensive, so overrated, in my opinion. It's just like I would totally rather drink a Tortuga Nacional for $8 than a $50 Napa Cab, hands down, any day. Yeah. And it's like, it's one of those things where, like, there are exceptions, I think. Like, there are some yeah. of those wines that are really yeah. well made. But, like, 
you know, great. That's a wine that you let someone else open for you. And that's cool. Yeah. And when you have the opportunity yeah. to try it, great. But, you know, when we're talking about, you know, shopping for yourselves, for ourselves, I think for the most part, you know, you, you for the for the time being at least, I think we'll stick with stuff that's, uh, that's that delivers a lot of ex- extra value as opposed to just sort of name recognition. Yeah, totally. Okay. Next question. So on the last podcast, you mentioned you love the Loire Valley. What do you like most about the wine from the region? So first of all, I just think that the Loire Valley is a baller region (laughs) just in general. And that's a place where you can find good values too. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, mentioning from the last question. Um, But what I love most about the wines from that region, I think is two things, a high acid because of the region being a cooler climate um, and the minerality. So those two things, just the wines that I love to drink and that have, you know, sparked this love for wine for me are wine, the wines that are tart, very tart, very like young fruit on them. And then have tons of like minerality, like you're laying in a stream, like licking rocks mm. like that, but in a wine. And those are the two things that I think very are very popular in the Loire in their wines, in the style of wine. Yeah, and it's really cool because I think it's a it's a consistent thing that's carried through. Like the Loire itself as a river is pretty long and the valley itself covers like a pretty wide swath of Western France, like all the way from the Atlantic to basically um, just outside Paris. And so uh-huh. you're talking about like a lot of different, you know, different varietals as you move from uh, East to West and, and different growing conditions. But it is really true. Like that elevated acidity, that pronounced minerality, like whether you're talking about Sancerre, Vouvray, uh, Chinon, uh, Muscadet, like all those things are, are like in one way or another show that. And it's really cool. I, I think the other thing that's really, I love about the Loire and I, I know this was a question intended for you, but I'm totally going to hijack it for a moment is that the other great thing about the Loire Valley to me is like you have a real focus because of the sort of Northern, uh, northerly climate, the cool climate. There's a lot of potential sort of, um, issues with, uh, disease pressure because of the how kind of damp it can be or again right on the valley of a river so there's a lot of uh, moisture especially towards the end of the growing season that can really affect the grapes is you just get a lot of um, high quality winemaking um, a lot of organic and biodynamic farming which to me is not like I don't necessarily shop for wines on account of that but I do think uh, when it's sort of just an implicit part of the region as it really is in most of the Loire um, it's really cool and I mean because of those structural elements that you mentioned, Heather, like wines from the Loire are some of the most um, exceptional pairing wines. So if you're talking, I mean, they're fun to drink on their own, but like when you put them with um, a huge range of foods, whether it's like Muscadet and oysters or Sancerre and like goat cheese or uh, like Bourgogne or Chinon, so Cap Franc um, with like lamb, they're all just dynamite. Yeah. And also... Like, I think you probably eat fancier food than I do, but like (laughs) burritos, like eating a burrito with a dope Cab Franc is probably the greatest experience one can have. I'm going to have that one. You know, it's been a little while since I've, since I've worked on my like uh, Mexican food pairings. Um, But I could, I can kind of see that. Like, I I feel like there's, there's definitely, see that's, but see, this is like a, this is a thing that bums me out because like, I, I used to live in New York City. I love New York City, but like, there's nowhere to get good Mexican food in New York City. 
No, so. there is not. And I am the like president of the club of people who hate New York City for their Mexican food. I was born and raised in Southern California, like damn near in Tijuana. So that kind of Mexican food is like heavenly. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very like passionately made. It's very beautiful, beautiful food. And so coming here, it's well, anywhere. I went to college in Mississippi and that shit's bad too. Yeah. It's like really bad in Mississippi. So it's a step up here, but <laughs> I yeah. will say like just just to to point out maybe to put a point on this comment, when I was in college in New York, the it was not only a big deal because we were college students, but it was like a big deal in general when Chipotle opened in lower Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is like sad, but also like at least pre like you get free E. coli with your burrito day. Like yeah. it was legitimately the best option in the area, which I mean, no, not to knock Chipotle too hard, but like it is sad if anywhere, if you're anywhere, especially a global city like New York city and the best available option is Chipotle. That's just, yeah. I'm going to put it out there, but let's return to, let's return to wine. Um, yeah. Cause I'm pretty sure they don't, uh, serve it there. So I've got a I've got a question here from uh, Matt Daniel which was uh and it's appropriate cuz we're kind of right in this time of year which is uh, after crush what's done with all the grapes that have been crushed? Which I think is like one of those questions that like when you think about it you're like yeah, what do they do with that? So I think the answer to this is it depends on where you are and who you are. The most common answer is basically the grapes just get composted um either on site if there's people who are if it's a winery that's like a uh with a with vineyards attached and they're really sort of focused, you know, often that stuff will get composted uh, and then added back to the vineyard. Um, and that's what a lot of uh, vineyards do. I will say that you do see some, you know, sometimes it just goes to commercial uh, composting or, uh, or things like that. But then the really fun thing to do um, with grapes that have been crushed is why, why limit yourself to just one go at wine? Um, you'll see uh, in a few places, uh, including uh, I think probably most famously in Valpolicella in uh, northern Italy, you'll see actually a, a style of wine called Ripasso, where they take um, some of the crushed grapes from um, Amarone, which is basically so they grapes are uh, this is a kind of an elaborate process, and I will try and cover it very quickly and also accurately. But basically, they take the grapes when they're picked, they air dry them for a period of months to really kind of raisinate them and concentrate the flavors, then they're pressed. That wine, that juice is made into a wine called Amarone, and then they make a second wine called uh, Ripasso di Valpolicella, where basically they take less dried grapes, regular grapes, they press that, uh, and then they take that juice and basically pass it over the uh, pressed skins from the Amarone to kind of add back some of that, or to add some of those flavors to kind of deepen the wine, and those are amazing. I mean, Amarone is an amazing experience. It is intense, and it's expensive, uh, yeah. but Ripasso di Valpolicella is like, if you want like 80% of Amarone, and you want to pay like, I don't know, 30% of what Amarone costs, is a really good way to go about doing it. Yeah, the, those are big-ass wines, though. Like, mm. those are the wines that turn your teeth colors. <laughs> like, like as soon as you take a sip, you have, like, red teeth. But, um, yeah, if you see those by the glass at any... <laughs> place i would say take it take yeah. it by the glass so you could you know just try it because you don't want to buy a bottle of that well maybe you do yeah that's and that's a great thing for you but amarone is yeah. a let's let's say it's a uh it's a it's an expensive habit yeah definitely um yeah. i will say also i should have mentioned too the other thing that you see sometimes done with with grapes um and you see this a lot in uh, various parts of france is you also see in italy uh basically a distillation 
Um, so grappa, uh, which uh, I like to call sort of um, drinkable rocket fuel, uh, and uh, other sort of similar distilled brandies from from crushed grapes, Mark, and there's a few other things that's called in France I can't remember at the moment. Um, so basically, again, you'll sort of, you'll take that those crushed grapes, you'll then um, sort of, tr- they'll, my understanding is they basically take the must, they um, start a, another fermentation with the remaining sugar that may still be there, and then distill that, and you end up with a sort of um, fairly high proof, very intense, um, but still kind of, like with slight hints of wine notes, but it's very, it's like, it's kind of hard to pick out when mostly what you're getting is like high proof alcohol. Uh, but those are really fun. Um, and they're, they're the kind of thing as well that like a few sips are probably enough for most of us, but are um, interesting and clearly the result of a lot of French people being like, you know what? Wine is great, but sometimes I need to drink to forget. And then I need something that's a lot stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Grappa's cool. I like grappa, but yeah, it'll it'll kick your ass fast yeah. if you don't be careful. Well, and it's also like it's the opposite of wine. Like I don't like I like to smell pretty much everything that's put in front of me. But like you put your nose in a glass of grappa and you, like it will singe your nose. Yeah, in. that will so, it'll be hard. <laughs> <laughs> I was at a restaurant with my um, cousin the other night and we ordered some grappa and I asked for it to be over ice, mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of help me. Yeah. Mellow and uh, yeah. And the guy was like, it was like blasphemous that I was mm-hmm. asking for it with ice. And I was like, sorry, you put the ice in a separate glass if you'd like. Yeah. You, um, I'll, 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 I'll commit the sin. You don't have to be yeah. a party to it. <laughs> but yeah. Um, okay. So the next question I have is, have you ever had Blanc de Blue? So I think, pretty sure you're talking about blue wine mm-hmm. that's been like on Twitter and everywhere lately. Yeah, I... And um, I would have to say, fuck no, and I will never put it in my mouth. Blue wine, no. Yeah, not it... into it. Absolutely not. I am a very... There are certain things to me that just shouldn't happen in the world of wine. And one of them is um, wines that are uh, not colors that grapes are. So, like, um, if you could make a blue wine from from actual grapes, that would be great. Um, I'd be interested to try it. It's maybe even possible, but blue is not a color that very many things in nature are. <laughs> and so when something looks like blue raspberry, uh, I get skeeved out for one. Um, I also just think like, you know what's great? Sparkling wine. You don't need to buy something that has like blueberry flavor added or whatever the hell they do to it. Yeah. That's just my guess. I don't know. Um, again, uh, not interested uh, it's probably one of those things where if I was drunk enough, I would try it and be like, this is gross, but whatever. Um, I just, there's like, there's so much great wine out there. There's so much great sparkling wine. I just, so I just Googled this. It sells for like $17. I could what? name you. Yeah. I, for a seven fifty, I could name 30 <laughs> in the next five, in the next two minutes, like 30 bottles of sparkling wine that are infinitely better for at least that, for less than that. Um, And it's just like, 
I don't know. I I, I hate. I, to, agree. I hate. To, I don't like to tell people very often that they are just like do not drink a thing, but don't drink Blanc de Blue. You don't can read it. read Blanc de Blonde. Don't drink yeah. Blanc de Blue. Absolutely, that was great. Thank yeah. you for that. Uh, you know. Um, yeah, it looks like antifreeze, and I'm not down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Again. thing I like about wine, like the wine I drink, usually is very, and it's not all the time, but I try very hard to drink natural biodynamic or low intervention wines. That's what I'm into. I'm really into just like drinking grapes, not chemicals. And so this is, you're just going out of your way to be drinking chemicals. Yeah. So. And it's also just like, I mean, again, not to be too uh, pedantic about this, but like wines are at their best when they are for the most part, with maybe a few exceptions, an expression of a time and a place. And when you just make, bulk wine and add flavor like fine but then like i don't know drink something else point? like yeah, yeah. Like, like i i just if you're gonna drink wine drink wine if you're gonna drink a blueberry cocktail then go drink a like a stoli blueberry like it's essentially yeah. the same idea you put some yeah. soda water in it and you've basically i think got the same thing as far as yeah. i can tell so. i agree um okay and then What's the youngest Sauvignon Blanc you'd consider drinkable? Hmm. So I would say that it really depends on, you know, who's producing it and how they're producing it. So there are Sauvignon Blanc that is made to be drunk young. Like that's, you know, a lot of Sancerre you can drink very young, like, you know, when it's released. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're like Nicholas Jolie is a producer in the Loire. Um and he makes like very oxidative, different style, funky Sauvignon Blancs and Chenin Blanc. Um, and I think those are meant to be, you know, age. You could put age on that. So, I mean, I would say it really depends. But I drink, I love, you know, Loire Valley Sauvignon Blanc. And I drink it young. Mm-hmm. You know, 2015 is fine, 14. I just got a sample bottle of 2016 Chilean Sauvignon Blanc. which. Yeah. Threw me for a loop for a second. I was like, oh, wait, Southern Hemisphere. They pick those grapes in like January, February. So it's just young. It's not unreasonably young. Um, yeah. I mean, I think Sauv Blanc is one of those varietals where in general, like the ex- the examples of it that are really meant to age are few and far between. Um, there's some stuff out there for sure. Uh, but for the most part, I think it's a varietal where you should like it's safe to assume that you probably are it should probably be drank within a few years of release because just the way the the way the sort of fruit profile the varietal and all those things like i i just i haven't had a lot of i haven't had like experimented with it a bunch but like the old expression like the older bottles of sauvignon blanc i've had that are really good tend to be really austere as far as so there's like very little fruit, yeah definitely and it's just like then you're really just kind of getting this integrated you know sort of minerality and 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 some acidity and all that and those things can remain vibrant for a long time but if like you're if you love like new zealand Sauv blanc i don't think there's a lot out there on the market that people are like oh sell her this for a decade like it's like no you buy your kim crawford and you drink it or you know someone yeah. who's a little more interesting than kim crawford but you know that's the one that's out there um or one of the ones that's out there so um i i would not i would say that like of almost all the varietals out there Sauv blanc would be one of the ones where i'd be like don't like if anything like do not overthink this. Just get the bottle and drink it. And yeah. and whereas there's stuff out there where I would say like uh, you should consider waiting to drink this wine. 
um, I think for the most part, Sauv Blanc, you were pretty safe. Like if if someone has put it in a bottle, it's probably fine to drink it. Yeah. Or box or Tetra Pak or whatever your preferred can, <laughs> whatever your preferred vehicle for uh, Sauvignon Blanc is. Yeah, I agree. Um, I have to say the same. And I think uh, I know a lot of my readers and the kind of people I want to talk to wine about is are not people who are like snobby wine people. So they may not know this, um, but you don't need to like the, there's this thing. Everyone thinks that you should age all wine. All of it gets better with age. And that's not true. And I think that just like you said, Sauvignon Blanc is one of those things where it actually is not going to help it and it may get worse with age. Yeah. So. And I think like, yeah, there's, there's a very narrow band of wine that is like, will in almost undoubtedly improve with age. There's a lot of wine that won't. There's some wine that might or will improve or improve is maybe even the wrong way to put it. It'll change and still be interesting and enjoyable with age. But for the most part, the vast majority of the world that's of the wine that's made in the world is meant to be drank. I don't know, within a couple years of bottling. Um, And it's just aging. Yeah. You, you, you also can't like take wine that is like not complex and not age worthy and age it and think it will get better. Like you, yeah. you might as well just drink it when you buy it because that's probably as good as it's going to get. Yeah. Like don't buy Sutter's home and just <laughs> think you're going to age that shit. Yeah. It's not going to age well. Yeah. I mean, I would say maybe just don't buy it in the first place, yeah. but yeah, definitely don't buy it and age it. Um, that you'll just be, it'll be worse. I did once. So I, this is a funny story. Cause I, I think so. I got a bottle when I, when I first moved, uh, when I moved back to Seattle after college and, got an apartment and my mom got me a bottle of like let's just say it was um not wine i really wanted to drink uh even then uh it was very sweet and my mom's probably listening so please don't be offended mom um i love you but um i had it and i never opened it um because i wasn't really like interested so it was like a some cheap California Chardonnay that had like a cute name on it, which is I think why she bought it for me. Uh, and so it just like sat in the back of my uh, closet for the almost nine years I lived in that apartment. And then uh, right when I was moving out, I took it out and I was like, huh, I should open this and just see. Uh, <clears throat> let's just say <laughs> I had a sip and then it went down the drain. So yeah, yeah, don't just, don't just age your wine because like that's, if you're, if you want to get into aging wine, you want to start a collection, uh, you can, we can talk more about that another time, but it's like you gotta you gotta pick wine specifically for that. Don't just buy any old wine and think you should age it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. Hey, uh, any more questions, or uh, we cover no. cover everyone's uh, pressing out? It's all I got too. Um, well, Heather, thanks so much for uh, for joining me. Uh, fun to chat with uh, chat about some. Uh, listener and reader questions uh, once again uh, heather gordon you can find her uh, on blanc de blonde.com uh it's b-l-a-n-c-d-e-b-l-o-n-d.com and uh heather thanks so much for joining me yeah thank you for having me excellent we'll do it again soon all righty once again thanks to heather gordon for joining me today for more irreverent wine reviews check out blanc de blonde.com or follow her on twitter at blanc de blonde Similarly, you can find me at Zjebal, that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E, on both Twitter and Instagram. And for more information about wine classes and events, visit vinetrainings.com, that's Vine with a V. Thanks for listening to Disgorged, and cheers. Cheers.